Introduction First Part of The Path of Light The Bodhicharyavatara by Shanti Deva This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America. The Path of Light, the Bodhicharyavatara of Santi Deva, translated by L. D. Barnett. Introduction, Part One. When the religion formerly received is rent by discords, remarks Bacon in his subtle essay on the vicissitudes of things, and when the holiness of the professors of religion is decayed and full of scandal, and with all the times be stupid, ignorant, and barbarous, you may doubt the springing up of a new sect. If then also there should arise any extravagant and strange spirit to make himself author thereof. If a new sect have not two properties, fear it not, for it will not spread. The one is the supplanting or the opposing of authority established, for nothing is more popular than that. The other is the giving license to pleasures and a voluptuous life. For as for speculative heresies, such as were in ancient times the Arians, and now the Armenians, though they work mightily upon men's wits, they do not produce any great alteration in states, except it be by the help of civil occasions. There be three manners of plantations of new sects, by the power of signs and miracles, by the eloquence and wisdom of speech and persuasion, and by the sword. For martyrdoms, I reckon them amongst miracles, because they seem to exceed the strength of human nature. And I may do the like of superlative and admirable holiness of life. So far as his range of knowledge extended, Bacon's remarks are true. But when we attempt to apply them to the history of Buddhism, we find that they need considerable qualification. Buddhism arose in an age when the holiness of the professors of religion, the influence of the Brahmin hierarchy in India, was decayed and full of scandal. But the times, far from being stupid, ignorant, and barbarous, were full of eager intellectual and moral activity. On all sides ancient doctrines were being reaffirmed by their professors and assailed by critics, while new systems of thought were rising everywhere. The Buddha himself was not an extravagant and strange spirit, but a man whose thought in essentials was thoroughly in harmony with the ideas of Hinduism, and whose character fulfilled a Hindu ideal. His church did indeed endeavor to supplant the authority of the Brahmins, but it sought to attain this end neither by the giving license to pleasures and a voluptuous life, nor by the sword. Its marvelous success was due to the eloquence and wisdom of speech and persuasion, and to the superlative and admirable holiness of life of the Buddha. About a hundred miles north from Benares, on the border of Nepal, where the plain of the Ganges begins to rise to the uplands at the edge of the mighty Himalayas, lies a little region which was once the home of the Sakyas, a class of Kshatriyas, or men of the warrior caste, to Sudodana of Kapilavastu, a nobleman of the Gautama family of this tribe, was born about 560 B.C., a son Siddhartha. 
When he grew up, Siddhartha likewise married and begot a son, Rahula by name. And then, when he was about twenty-nine years of age, as tradition relates, Siddhartha became weary of the world and the flesh. The ghastly riddle of life, life with its endless vicissitudes of phantom pleasure and ever-renewed pain, was ceaselessly pressing itself upon him, as it has pressed itself upon so many thousands of other Hindus, and he could find no rest in his father's home. So he left the world to become a wandering beggar student, in the hope of finding the key to the great mystery in the teachings of some master of philosophic lore. But none of the teachers whom he met could satisfy the hunger of his soul, and the severest mortifications of the flesh brought him no light. One day, as he sat meditating in the shadow of a fig-tree, his long searchings of heart came to an end, and the answer to the mystery of life was revealed to him. Henceforth he was the Buddha, the enlightened seer, who had won the perfect peace of spiritual knowledge, the nirvana, and the remaining years of his long life were passed in imparting his teaching for the salvation of his fellow-creatures, and thus founding the Buddhist church, until about 482 B.C., full of years and honor, he departed to the supreme nirvana. When we examine the doctrines which appear to have been taught by the Buddha, we see that they are founded upon two ancient conceptions that are characteristic of Hindu thought, the pessimistic idea of karma and the samsara, works and wandering. According to the usual Indian creed, the universe is tenanted by a countless number of souls in various degrees of elevation, and each of them must pass through an endless number of births and deaths in the most various kinds of bodies. Every moment of experience that each soul undergoes in each incarnation is the direct result of an act performed in a former birth or later, and in its turn bears fruit in a future experience thus forming a series of sorrows without beginning and without end. For life, however pleasant it may seem, is in reality but a long elusive agony, from which only the few escape who by their perfect spiritual insight win to identity with the transcendental being, Brahma. Now the Buddha, according to the ancient tradition of the Pali Kanan, dissented from this teaching on one very important point. He denied that there is a soul in the individual, and that there is a God or supreme being working in the manifold phenomena of the universe. Of course he believed in gods. No Hindu has ever seriously called them into question. But the gods, according to him, differed only in degree from mankind, and neither class possessed that permanent center of thought, that unchanging identity of consciousness, which we call soul or self. Our thoughts are never quite the same from second to second. Our mental life is only a series of causally connected instants of consciousness. By this denial the Buddha thought that he could more readily remove the moral and intellectual weakness of humanity, which is founded upon the conception, I am. For if there is no real subject of thought, no soul or self, it cannot predicate its own existence and therefore cannot conceive selfish desire. And desire is the root of embodied life, and therefore of all evil. 
The Buddha therefore taught a middle path, equally remote from worldly ways and from extreme asceticism, the noble path of eight members. The members of this path are as follows. Right views, or acceptance of the Buddha's teachings, which we have above set forth. Right desires, or pure aspirations making for righteousness, charity, and purity of heart. Right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, or constant intentness to avoid lapses into frailties of thought or conduct. Right mindfulness, or continual dwelling of the memory on the teachings of the faith for the same purpose, and right ecstasy, or spiritual exercises tending to promote the peace and sanctity of the mind. This noble path is one of the four noble truths which are the pillars of the Buddha's system. To wit, the fact that life is miserable, the fact that its misery has a cause, the fact that this cause can be killed and thereby the sorrow of life removed, and the fact that the noble path is the only method that can attain this end, for it destroys the selfish individualism inherent in the human mind, the original sin, and creates a universal knowledge and sympathy and a spiritual calm and purity which are salvation. The Buddha's doctrine as to the real nature of being and consciousness was expressed in a famous formula, called in Sanskrit, Pratitya Samutpada, and in Pali, Paticca Samupada, which means origination in a causal series. The members of the series are as follows. Ignorance, Sanskrit, Avidya, Pali, Avidya. Confirmations, Sanskrit, Samskaras, Pali, Samkara. Consciousness, Sanskrit, Vijnana, Pali, Vijnana. Name and form, Sanskrit and Pali, Nama Rupa. Six sense organs, Sanskrit, Shad Ayatana, Pali, Salayatana. Contact, Sanskrit, Sparsa, Pali, Vasa. Feeling, Sanskrit and Pali, Vedana. Desire, Sanskrit, Trishna, Pali, Tanha. Attraction, Sanskrit and Pali, Upadana. Being, Sanskrit and Pali, Bhava. Birth, Sanskrit and Pali, Jati. Age and death, Sanskrit and Pali, Jara Marana. Grief, lamentation, pain, depression, and despair. Sanskrit, Soka Pari Devana Dukha Dharmana Siya Upayasa. There are very few dogmas in the whole history of philosophy and religion that have been so copiously discussed and so differently interpreted as this. It seems to be an attempt to show how individual existences and consciousnesses arise in the cosmic process. According to Buddha's teaching, there is no permanent soul and there is no real matter. There exists only an infinite number of series of consciousnesses, either potentially or actively in operation and each series consists of a succession of moments of consciousness, each moment being the direct resultant of its predecessors. 
Now the force which directs this process in each series is its karma, or works, the influence of former activities, mostly in previous births. It is by reason of its former karma that a train of consciousness at a particular moment begins to develop itself into an individual, that is to say, a consciousness of being a particular person, human, divine, or animal. So we may interpret the Buddha's formula as a vague expression for the manner in which the individual emerges from the ocean of cosmic being. First in order is ignorance, that is to say, when we analyze the operation of karma upon a train of moments of consciousness, we find that its primary effect is to cause ignorance, namely the false belief held by this consciousness that it is a self, an ego, and the other consequent delusions. This ignorance in turn issues in confirmations, the potentialities of love, hatred, and the like weaknesses of the spirit, which are the resultants of activities in previous individuated existences, and inspire to future activities. Then emerges consciousness of finite being in general, and from this issue name and form, the conception of a definite world of particulars. This leads to the evolution of the sense organs, and the union of these with the apparent world outside them produces sensation, which issues in desire. In its turn desire leads to attraction, the attachment to individual life. So finite existence, bhava, is at last reached, and the developed consciousness passes through the stages of birth, disease, sorrow, and finally death. Then the process begins anew under the guidance of the old karma, reinforced by that which has resulted from the process that has just come to an end. If this interpretation be right, and it must be confessed that several others are equally plausible, it is evident that the formula is by no means satisfactory on all points. The causal connection between several of the members in the series in the Pratitya Samutpada is far from being clear, and can only be regarded as a dogma, post hoc ergo propter hoc. An individual, according to Buddhist teaching, does not really exist, but the semblance of an individual, the phenomenal personality, is a fact that cannot be denied and must be explained. The Buddhists explain it by saying that it is a combination of name and form. In name are included all the subjective phenomena of thought, namely feeling, general notions, confirmations, and definite consciousness which are called aggregations, in Sanskrit, skandhas, in Pali, khandhas. Form, meaning the four elements of physical nature, earth, water, fire, and air, and their products, is a fifth khanda. As we have seen, the force that unites these five khandas into an apparent individual or personality is what is called in Sanskrit karma, in Pali, kama, the resultant of all his previous acts. When a man dies, the khandas of which he is constituted perish, but by the force of his kama, a new set of khandas instantly starts into existence, and a new being appears in another world, who, though possessing different khandas and a different form, is in reality identical with the man just passed away, because his kama is the same. Kama, then, is the link that preserves the identity of a being through all the countless changes which it undergoes in its progress through samsara.
Now the great purpose of Buddhism, like that of most Hindu faiths, is to enable the believer to reach the perfect spiritual peace of nirvana, and thus come to an end of the cycle of embodied births. To attain this object he must destroy his kama, and this can be done by walking in the noble path, which will infallibly lead him, either in his present birth or later, to final salvation. End of Introduction, Part 1 Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America